Make sure you're subscribed to Issues Etc. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit that subscribe button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. When false teaching and practice first appear in the church, they simply ask for tolerance. They just let us sit in the corner. We'll be quiet. We promise. Just let us stay here. And it's not too long before they are asking for a place at the table. Then they want to sit at the head of the table. And then they want everyone else to leave and have the table to themselves. And that's what's happening in the United Methodist Church. It's getting kind of brutal. They tried to do this in an orderly fashion this division of the largest Protestant denomination in the world, and it hasn't turned out that way. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us for an update on the divisions in the United Methodist Church, John Lamparis. He's United Methodist Director for the Institute on Religion and Democracy. John, welcome back. Good to be back with you. The Associated Press has a lengthy story on the election of the second openly gay bishop in the United Methodist Church and the denomination's leftward direction. What's your reaction to the story? Well, I think that it is very clear that this is not your parents' United Methodist Church anymore. The United Methodist Church, as we have known it, with its beliefs, the people involved, kind of culture, and even the effective rules for how things are done, has effectively been killed, and it's something new that it's taking its name in its place. This has been a very hard left turn, and... Really, any United Methodist who is not a far-left, woke progressive needs to take the window of opportunity that they have, which is narrowing in the next few months, to leave the denomination with their property if they don't want to be stuck forever in having ultra-left-wing and unbiblical propaganda shoved down their throats. We do have a narrowing opportunity in our church law. The congregations can leave the denomination and take their property, but in most cases, that will expire by early 2023. And I just want to say, Todd, that it's important to understand this is not just about a liberal view on sexuality in terms of rejecting what Scripture clearly teaches about sexual morality and the immorality of homosexual practice, but there are far more fundamental issues. The very first bishop who was elected in my own jurisdiction, Tanitha Bigham Sai, I was there in the room when she was running for bishop earlier and was asked, and she just dodged saying directly whether or not she believed that Jesus Christ was actually physically resurrected from the dead. And she is on record, it's a video that you can look and see, of saying that, in her view, in the United Methodist Church, it is not important that we agree on who Christ is. Those are her exact words. And it is very important to the leaders that took control of the denomination that we have uniformity on issues like support for gay marriage, but apparently not important that we agree on something as basic as who Jesus Christ is. What does the UMC's own Book of Discipline have to say about homosexuality, gay marriage, and the ordination of LGBTQ people? We say in our Book of Discipline that we truly value all people as persons of sacred worth, and we welcome anybody to come to our churches. But we also teach in line with Scripture and the 2,000 years of global ecumenical consensus that sexual relations are only for monogamous heterosexual marriage. So we do have rules that forbid our clergy from going beyond those boundaries, from using pornography, having premarital sex, committing adultery, having same-sex partners, or officiating at same-sex weddings. 
Tell us about the measures that were passed by the UMC's five U.S. conferences regarding LGBTQ issues. Well, there were three resolutions that were in a coordinated way introduced and passed in all five of the U.S. jurisdiction covering the five broad geographic regions of the United States. One of them was essentially a call to purge conservatives from denominational leadership. And essentially, it's been part of a wider trend we think, not just with these resolutions, of using the prospect that somebody might potentially not want to stay United Methodist anymore to say, oh, you are disloyal to the denomination, so you must be removed from leadership position, even if in our church law you have every right to be there. And this is being used essentially to try to drive out conservatives from leadership and replace them with liberals to remove any kind of effective voice for conservatives believers in denominational leadership. And it's been used in very inconsistent and hypocritical ways. And that was passed in all five jurisdictions, even the traditionally conservative Southeast. A second resolution was resurrecting this idea of what some critics have called the global segregation plan of indirect response to how our denomination's membership as a global denomination has been declining in the United States and increasing in Africa. So Africans have become increasingly more powerful in setting the denomination's directions at our governing general conferences, and Africans tend to be overwhelmingly theologically conservative. There's a plan to basically, really in an ironically neocolonialist way, to try to protect the privileges and power of predominantly white American United Methodists and say that American United Methodists can make their own decisions without having to listen to those pesky Bible-believing Africans. And that was passed in all three jurisdictions. It's a non-binding proposal, but it's uh, adding political weight to a very strong move to say that if Africans want to remain in the United Methodist Church, even though they're the majority of the denomination now, they could only remain under the terms of having their power really restricted from what it is now because the U.S. church leaders have made clear no way are they going to submit to majority black rule. And then a last resolution, it was called the Queer Delegates Resolution. I'm not trying to be derogatory. That's just what they called it. And it was by delegates who self-identify as queer or LGBTQIA+. And it was essentially calling for, even though our denomination has those standards I just shared with you about clergy are not allowed to officiate same-sex unions or have same-sex partners, calling for basically bishops and others to just unilaterally take action of not listening to the global church, not listening to scripture, and just create a new de facto reality where people can just violate those standards and not really have consequences. So how else have traditionalists been subtly driven out of the UMC? Well, it was made abundantly clear with these five jurisdictional conferences and in so many other ways that have been going on that the United Methodist Church is moving in a very woke, hard-left direction. They believe it is an essential issue as a matter of justice to have support for same-sex unions. And if you don't like any of this uh, agenda, then there's the door. We don't want to hear from you. At my own North Central Jurisdictional Conference, even during the worship times, which are supposed to be submitting ourselves towards God and listening to Him, bishops were using that as an opportunity in their preaching, in their sermons, to have little dings against conservatives to promote the righteousness of abortion rights or promote liberal partisan agendas. And I can say 
in my own north central jurisdiction, there was all the delegates, all of us delegates, conservative, liberal and whatnot, were subjected to a re-education session, essentially, that was over two hours long. And it was very one-sided, heavy-handed and obnoxious about the evils of, quote-unquote, heterosexism and transphobia in the United Methodist Church, to the point of even labeling people in the church who are not supportive of transgender ministers as abusers. So that was making very clear that if you want to stay in the United Methodist Church, you are going to stay as a project until essentially we can beat the theological orthodoxy out of you. Where does the exodus from the UMC currently stand? There is no one comprehensive tracking. It's been uh, very piecemeal. We at the Institute on Religion and Democracy have been doing some of our own tracking, and we know of nearly a thousand congregations have at least voted or voted or in some cases been approved to leave the denomination from just within American United Methodism. And we expect that there's others that we just haven't been able to track yet. And we expect that by the time this is all sorted out, particularly within the next year or two, that there will ultimately be several thousands in the United States and a much larger exodus outside of the United States. The Associated Press also had a recent story titled Louisiana Churches Leave Methodist Denomination Amid Schism. What do you know about that story? Well, some annual conferences, that's our main geographic unit, there's a little over 50 in the United States, have had special conferences. They normally meet in May or June, but some of them have had additional special sessions this fall to approve dozens of congregations that have sought to disaffiliate. And so they had one on Saturday that was over Zoom, so it was very quick in the Louisiana conference with several dozen congregations there. And while, yes, it was not anywhere near a majority, it also included the largest congregation in St. Timothy's on the North Shore in that in Louisiana United Methodism was among those that was approved to disaffiliate. And it was one of the largest congregations, and in fact, the denomination nationwide that was among those leaving. And that is a situation where, unfortunately, you have a bishop who is you know, now moving to East Texas, Bishop Cynthia Harvey, who has chosen to not treat others as she would want to be treated, I would think. And you know, it was under her leadership that they have what is an extremely mean-spirited requirement in their separation, that they're essentially requiring that all congregations that want to leave, that the conference office has to come and essentially steal their hymnals from them so they can't take their hymnals with them. It's like, why would you do that other than wanting to just rub their faces in the dirt on the way out? How have overseas UMC conferences reacted to all this? Well, I know that to the extent that they're finding out, sometimes it takes news a little while to trickle out overseas, but there is a lot of disappointment. There is a statement from the Africa Initiative, which is a group of United Methodist leaders across the continent of sub-Saharan Africa, who are extremely disappointed by that. And they particularly have appealed to both the fact that this is the actions of what is going on in American United Methodism, particularly with the election of a openly partnered gay bishop in the Western jurisdiction, clearly violates scripture, clearly violates our book of discipline, but it also is a fact of the American minority of the church arrogantly saying, we don't have to listen to the global majority because we are Americans and we know what's best and we're going to do what we want and we're not going to listen to the non-American part of the church.
What do you make of the claim that the UMC is still a big tent? I think anybody claiming at this point that the United Methodist Church is still a big tent that wants and welcomes theological traditionalists is just lying. I have seen it up close and firsthand, and the experience of these jurisdictional conferences in my own jurisdiction and the others uh, make clear that this new regime in charge of American United Methodism does not want non-liberals involved in any decision-making in the denomination. Among the 13 new bishops elected, 13, that's a big group of bishops, but there was not room for a single non-liberal to be elected, not even someone who was moderately theologically conservative. And beyond that, there were other efforts to very heavy-handedly shame and silence more conservative delegates and make clear that our presence there, even as a small minority in those conferences, was resented. So the new leaders of the denomination have made clear that when push comes to shove, they really, really want conservatives to remain our denomination for only two reasons. Number one, to pay apportionment money to continue to support what has become a very corrupt denominational bureaucracy, and number two, to be converted away from biblical faith. And we especially saw that in my own North Central Jurisdictional Conference by subjecting all delegates to an over two-hour anti-heterosexism, anti-transphobia re-education session. And that's the kind of thing we can expect to come throughout the denomination more and more to try to squash any remaining pockets of Orthodox faith. What's the current makeup of the Council of Bishops in the UMC? Well, again, we have lots of new bishops who just got elected, and meanwhile, there are lots of relatively more conservative and theologically moderate bishops who decided to retire earlier than they needed to. And so January 1st is a big transition date when old ones will have retired and new ones will take office. And in the U.S. portion of the church, I really don't think I can name a single one, and I I know most of the bishops to some extent— that there will be a single bishop left in American United Methodism who is a strong, consistent, and reliable leader as a theological traditionalist. And there are some that are more theologically conservative than others, but they have shown a primary loyalty to the institution of the denomination. Meanwhile, there are large numbers of very vocal activist radical bishops that are growing in number and who are increasingly shifting the center of gravity further and further to the left. In that vein, with the attrition of traditionalist congregations, how long until the UMC General Conference votes to overturn the current rules regarding homosexuality, gay marriage, and the ordination of LGBTQ people? I don't think it would be that long. I would just say as a slight correction that in terms of ordination of LGBTQ people, I understood that you know people have understanding of what that means, but we do not have a stance in the discipline against somebody who says, through no choice of my own, I'm attracted to people of the same sex, but I know what the Bible says, I know what the discipline says, and I'm going to be committed to celibacy for life. We don't have a stance on that uh, as a denomination, and we also don't have really a clear stance and have not, despite efforts on either side, on transgenderism. But in terms of the rules against ordaining openly partnered, non-celibate gay pastors and having blessings of same-sex unions, it could very well happen in the 2024 General Conference. It's still not guaranteed with the size of overseas voters, but if not then, almost certainly by the next General Conference, which could I would expect, if it's not liberalized by 2024, that would probably come earlier than 2028. But if congregations wait and say, well, I'm just going to wait and see 
if the discipline changes. And once the discipline changes, then we'll try to get out. But I'm not going to leave until then. But if people wait with that attitude, they're going to wait too long because they'll find that it's too late because what we've seen of the the take no prisoners mood from these jurisdictional conferences earlier this month is that once this liberal faction gets their way, they are not in a mood to be generous or gracious or offer golden rule treatment to those of us who would be on the losing side. So while congregations have a chance with paragraph 2553 in our discipline that expires next year and effectively expires in the first part of next year, in most cases, they should look up what they can in their annual conferences rules and find what opportunity they have to try to get their congregation out with their property now while they still have the chance. John Lomperis is United Methodist Director for the Institute on Religion and Democracy. You'll find a link to the Institute on Religion and Democracy at issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. John, thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Todd. When we come back, Mark Hemingway joins us. He's senior writer for Real Clear Investigations and author of a recent column titled In the Left's New Tack on Abortion, Pro-Lifers Must See a Miscarriage of Facts. We'll talk about post-road disinformation next. Join Lutherans for Life in Washington, D.C., Thursday, January 19th through Saturday, January 21st, 2023. Go to lutheransforlife.org to learn more about LFL's Conference for Adults, LFL at the March, and the Y for Life Youth Conference in Washington, D.C. The registration deadline is December 15th. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. Lutheransforlife.org. Making Disciples for Life. Across the nation, students are back in school in over 1,800 schools serving children in early childhood through high school. Students are thriving in programs of excellence in a safe, caring Christian environment taught by dedicated teachers. To find a school in your community, visit lcms.org schools. Connect today for information about a Lutheran school for the children in your family at lcms.org schools. Contending for truth in an age of anti-truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. Memoria Press is a family-run publisher of classical Christian education materials for homeschools and private schools. Every page of the Memoria Press curriculum leads students to a mastery of content, an understanding of the classical heritage of the Christian West, and an appreciation of truth, goodness, and beauty. If you're interested in learning more, visit memoriapress.com and use the coupon code LPR23. Memoria Press, saving Western civilization one student at a time. memoriapress.com Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial-A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial-A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now.